Hey, Miles, Amazing X-Men 7 is a riff on Spider-Man and his amazing friends, right? Yeah, Rachel, it's Spider-Man, Iceman, and Firestar, just like the cartoon. And you grew up watching that, didn't you? Oh yeah, it was awesome. If you were six years old, anyway, it really doesn't hold up so well. I'm really curious, how did they pull off Firestar in a kid's cartoon? I mean, her origin is so fucked up. It's like the Thomas Hardy novel of superhero comics. What? It, no, it, it's, it's not. Really? The stuff with Emma Frost systematically socially isolating her and gaslighting her into thinking her powers are out of control? What are you talking about? Firestar's origin is a pretty vanilla anti-bullying story. Some popular girls frame her for stealing a trophy or something. Wait, what? Is that before or after she's at the Massachusetts Academy? She's in generic public high school. They must have added the Massachusetts Academy stuff when they decided to bring her into the comics. Okay, because in the comic, Emma convinces Firestar and Firestar's dad that she'll help Firestar control her powers, and then she spends years socially isolating her and grooming her to be totally dependent and freakishly loyal. Okay, that is definitely not from the cartoon. In Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends, Xavier pretty much finds her and takes her in right away. There's a super awkward reunion episode, and Cyclops' voice is incredibly grating. Well, in the comics, Empath uses his powers to make her fall in love with him, so she'll help him and some other Hellions try to kill the X-Men. X tries to recruit her, but she turns him down because by then she's convinced that Emma's her only friend. Well, she's not though, right? God, no. Real friends don't use amulets to control your dreams, Miles. Ew. Also, real friends don't spend years grooming you to assassinate the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club. Wow. Or blow up your pony. What?! I'm Rachel Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 15th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. Before we get started today and dive into more glorious Claremonti goodness, we have a couple of announcements. And they're really cool announcements. So first of all, starting July 31st, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is going to be available not only through the avenues you're used to, so our website, iTunes, and Stitcher, but also at comicsalliance.com. New episodes are going to be going up every Thursday. They'll still be going up in all the normal places at the same time they do now, so Sunday afternoons, but there'll be a little bit of an extra window to go check them out at Comics Alliance. And uh, at the same time, uh, we are launching a Patreon campaign. So if you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a little bit like Kickstarter, except it's more of an ongoing thing. It's a subscription-based model. So if you've been looking for a way to support Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, this would be an awesome way to do so. Now, Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is going to stay free and freely available. We're never, ever, ever going to have outside advertising. Those are two things that we're really committed to. On the other hand, right now, every episode takes us about six to ten hours to put together between research, writing, recording, and putting together the visual companion. Which is fine, but it doesn't leave a lot of room for other stuff that we'd like to do with the podcast and with the site. So we're looking into having uh, more write-ups on the site. We're looking into some unique swag, potentially even things like giant-sized annual episodes every year. Among the, I think they're called milestones, not stretch goals on Patreon. I keep on thinking stretch goals. Um, But among those are things like video reviews of current X books, doing basically weekly capsule reviews views of those additional in-depth text posts. I'm really excited about that one because there are a lot of writers who I'd love to get to contribute guest essays, like people whose voices I'd really, really love to have as part of the site. I think one of them is is doing an annual Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men's print zine. Oh, man. Yeah, that would be awesome. So, uh, yeah, check it out. It's linked from our site, rachelandmiles.com. Uh, we'd really love um, if you supported the, uh, the, the podcast. And if not, we just would love for you to keep listening forever. Meanwhile, X-Men. And Magneto! Oh man, Magneto's back and I'm so happy about it! What's more, this is going to be the Magneto that we've come to know and love. I mean, he's. we'll, we'll get to this in greater depth. Oh, oh we bit. loved him before, too. 
Well, yes, that guy does do some good speechifying, and I respect that in a supervillain. But the sort of nuanced, morally gray, fascinating villain that most people think of Magneto as now, it's around this run where he really shows up, and we're going to get to that a little bit later it's in the It's not episode. just around this run. It's specifically in this story arc. X-Men 150 is really where Magneto, as the character he remains today, is introduced. So let's see where we're coming from. Previously on X-Men. Recently, the X-Men had to go and fight Doctor Doom in Arcade. And when they did that, Xavier went and got in touch with a bunch of previous X-Men who'd left the team. And one of the ones he tried to get in touch with was Cyclops, but he was blocked by some kind of magnetic interference. So he's starting to think, hey, maybe Magneto's doing something again. We haven't seen him in a while. Maybe he's up to his old dastardly tricks. So where is Scott at this point? Cyclops has been taking a break after Jean Grey died in the Dark Phoenix saga, seemingly, and he's been on just a normal fishing boat called the Arcadia with its captain, Lee Forrester. Lee Forrester, as you may recall from the last episode, is fucking awesome. And she's just sort of a normal person, but she gets pulled into very strange circumstances, as does anybody who shows up in an X-Men book. Right. Her dad killed himself, and they went and, and fought an abstract concept embodied, and now they're shipwrecked in the Bermuda Triangle. So they're on this desert island, and I want to talk for a minute specifically about how they're dressed on this desert island because over three episodes they lose all of their clothes it's basically if you've ever played prince of persia the sands of time this is the same progression oh yeah and i also like that sort of as their relationship heats up because of course they were sort of romantically involved at the beginning of this and they're very much so now it's like they just they just can't keep their clothes on around each other and in fact their clothes cannot stay intact around each other due to the sheer heat of their passion presumably yeah they start out with jeans and then they're capri length and then like by the time we get to x-men 148 they're just teeny tiny like sauron style jorts a Soran should just show up and they should just have a big, like, beach barbecue. It would be great. Play some volleyball. So anyway, they find this enormous... The, the word I keep on thinking of to describe it is so utterly context-inappropriate and confusing, which is cyclopean. But, um, <laughs> this, this is very much a Lovecraft word, but, like, less racist um, than many other Lovecraft words. But yeah, it's, it's basically like this big Atlantean castle, right? And like it's, it looks... Yeah, it's this grand castle with these, you know, monstrous statues outside, and it's gorgeous and crystalline, and they wander in and completely fail to effectively hook up in one of my favorite Lee Forrester scenes where she basically propositions Cyclops and he goes into an attack of solipsistic angst and she tells him he can't get in another relationship now and thinks losing Jean was so terrible and she's like, no, no, dude, we're shipwrecked and my dad killed himself. I really just want a quick hookup. But Cyclops, he's like, oh man, uh, this is so much easier when my girlfriend was telepathic and could just read my mind. It's like, come on, Cyclops. He kind of lacks basic human communication skills. I kind of feel like, you know, he has to get used to dealing with normal people. I mean, it's not like he's ever going to be in a relationship with a telepath again, right? Wah, wah. <laughs> um, we should also point out that during this time, Cyclops, his visor's gone, his ruby quartz glasses are gone. So he's basically just had like a strip of cloth from his increasingly deteriorating clothing tied around his face so he doesn't inadvertently blast anyone. It falls off occasionally just to, for moments of amplifying interpersonal drama. Yeah, he definitely does one of those fall to his knees, no, kind of things uh, when he's frustrated at uh, having messed up his relationship with Lee. Okay, we can assume that any fabric that they're wearing is just spectacularly flimsy, so I, I assume that's part of what's going on. These are like really unstable molecules that they're wearing. Was this during the age of like paper dresses, sort of space age clothing? This was, af this was after that, so there's really just no, no good excuse here. Nope. So anyway, the point is they find a giant castle, and what's kind of surprising to the readers is that, you know, Big Atlantean Castle, you figure like, okay, it's Namor, or maybe it's uh, some of the people from the Atlantis Attacks crossover a little bit later. But we're going to get back to that in a second, because meanwhile, back at stately Xavier Manor, Angel is in a snit. 
Angel, you may recall, he he left the X-Men in Giant Size X-Men number one at the very beginning of Claremont's run. He leaves the X-Men a lot. Yeah, and he No came... one really ever misses him. <laughs> well, he came back around the Dark Phoenix saga to help out and stuck around for Days of Future Past. But at this point, he's, he's just not used to the new team. And specifically, he's really upset with Xavier about Wolverine being on the team. In defense of Angel at this point, Wolverine does spend a lot of time actively attempting to kill his teammates. He gets pissed off and tries to stab people like every issue well there's also, i would be kind of upset about that too yeah and there's also the fact that wolverine really has killed quite a few people over the course of his time on the x-men like not just you know injured them or done like on the cartoon and wrestled with them with his claws out but never injured them uh, beyond that no he straight up murdered a lot of people they were all faceless hellfire club peons and again you know that's it's not like that's going to come back to haunt them right it's not like that's going to come back to haunt them in stuff we'll talk about later in this episode so anyway angel leaves for an exciting solo career of dodging airborne projectiles and I guess being super rich. But it's okay because we've actually got a couple new people who show up at the mansion. Uh, First of all, Ilyana Rasputin, who was introduced a while back as one of Arcade's hostages, who is uh, Colossus's adorable scamp of a little sister. And uh, like we mentioned last episode, she's basically every stereotype of cute little Russian girl. Yeah, enjoy that while it lasts, X-Men. Slight fast forward, she's going to end up becoming Magic, a member of the New Mutants, and one of the most complicated characters in X-Men history. And if you've been listening to this podcast at all, or reading X-Men at all, you know what a statement that is. Woohoo! Also, this issue, we meet a young woman who shows up at the mansion and introduces herself as Banshee's estranged daughter. This is Teresa Cassidy. Uh, She will later be known as Siren with a Y. And actually, I think she's going by Teresa Rourke at this point. This is before the Cassidy reveal. Oh, yeah, okay. Which, Which takes about two panels, but... Hey, nonetheless, it's important to be detailed. Anyway, she's she's been raised by Sean's estranged cousin, Black Tom, and presumably also Juggernaut, since they're kind of hetero life mates. And presumably also Black Tom Cassidy's shillelagh. I love saying shillelagh, and now I've been able to say it again. Continue. And presumably also the leprechauns of Cassidy Keep. Does she know Wolverine's real name? Because the leprechauns told her? That would make so much sense. It would. Anyway, uh, she shows up and there's a brief and touching reunion, which we then just ignore and don't touch on for a really long time. Later on, she's going to eventually change her codename to Banshee. She's going to join a bunch of X teams. She is currently, I believe, the goddess Morgan. It's a little weird, but yeah, she's cool. So whatever. Cuts to some of the other characters at a, is this like a disco club or what? Oh man. So Kitty Storm, Stevie Hunter, and Spider-Woman, who is hanging out with the X-Men briefly for no apparent reason, decide they're going to go out to what appears to be a disco dinner club to see Dazzler play. Is this like dinner theater? Is that how Dinner it disco? Oh my, was that a thing? Maybe this is like the last gasp of disco as it's attempting to adapt to survive. If this podcast ever falls through and our other jobs also ever fall through, we are starting a disco dinner theater. We are absolutely not doing that. They're here, they're watching Dazzler perform, and she's performing a bunch of different types of music, supposedly, but she's still It's dressed- not. It's, to- it's totally disco. I assume she's just like, this is classical. It really is, and then it's just disco. She's just, she's just lying about it. So, the important thing about this is that it introduces a character named Caliban, who is going to be around a lot more later. He's one of the Morlocks, and this is the first point after Days of Future Past, actually, that we really see Claremont delving into mutants as a metaphor for systemic oppression. For the most part, Claremont's run has been really out there adventure stories, and they've been very, very good out there adventure stories, but the mutant metaphor that X-Men was was founded on, we haven't seen Claremont tackle that a lot. Caliban and the Morlocks are something we're going to go into a lot later. Uh, right now, I just want to bring up very briefly that they're interesting because they introduce the idea of mutant passing privilege. The fact that there are some mutants who can pass as human and some mutants who are effectively blocked from human society because of their mutations and because they can't hide those. Because we've, we've got a group of very conventionally human-looking mutants out in public 
confronting really for one of the first times a mutant who really doesn't look human and you can tell how messed up he's been by this and the x-men in fact they, they sort of judge him immediately as a villain as well instead of and just, the cops straight up shoot him and really he's just somebody who's been so damaged by his circumstances that he doesn't really know how to behave appropriately toward other people like he tries to kidnap kitty but just because he wants a friend this is going to come back to haunt us later but not right now because right now back in the bermuda triangle um Scott and Lee come face to face with their mysterious host in the Atlantean castle, who is not, in fact, Namor, but Magneto, master of magnetism. And I'm so excited to see Magneto again. I'm excited every time he shows up. Because he's Magneto, he, of course, gets a last page of the issue. Great splash page reveal, too. There are certain things that are just completely consistent in Magneto's appearances, and that's one of them, and it never fails to make me really happy. Right, like they could end every third issue of X-Men with, holy crap, it's Magneto, and I would really never get sick of it. No, no, he has to declare it himself, or or the gag doesn't work. Holy crap, I am Magneto! Like that? Right. So, at this point, for narrative parallelism, Xavier decides to actually start following up on his revelation that Magneto was the one interfering with the signal. Yeah, this would be a little too convenient with him saying, hmm, I wonder what Magneto's been up to. Let me sort of recap everything, our entire history with this character. My telepathic powers are telling me he's going to become narratively significant really soon and may develop dynamically. But to be fair, I mean, there was that weird thing with the magnetic fields of the Earth interfering with his telepathy somehow, so at least there's some reason for him to do so. While Scott and Lee are engaging in cartoonish hijinks on the island trying to keep Magneto from figuring out who they really are, Xavier is on his supercomputer researching magnet stuff when his efforts are foiled by Kitty Pride bursting through the wall in the best outfit ever. Now, we say best outfit ever. We might also mean worst outfit ever, but when it comes to an outfit like this, both of those descriptors equally apply. It's got every color and every material known to man. It's gold and purple and green and blue and and sparkly, and it's wonderful. If you saw Logan Bonner's Pride slot drawing on the blog last week, this is the costume it's based on, and this is the costume that inspired it. We talked about how Kitty Pride is so very 13 years old. This is the costume that a really enthusiastic 13-year-old who really wanted to be a superhero would put together. It's this, like, gold lame unitard with exercise stuff over it and, like, a shirt with lightning bolts and fucking roller skates because, of course, she idolizes Dazzler. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and she can't roller skate very well. And it's delightful. Part of me kind of wishes she kept this uh, costume for longer, but as it is keeping it for the few issues she wears it, maybe that's enough. Yeah, like Kitty Pride's completely ridiculous and utterly teenagerly taste in superhero costumes is a running joke in this era. It's one of my favorite small offhand things about the character. In the meantime, uh, Xavier's, he's, he's annoyed by Kitty being a child and facing through his computers while he's using them because that messes them up. And he sends the X-Men to go check out Magneto's old underground volcano lair and bans Kitty, who, of course, being a plucky young teenager, stows along. This reminds me inexplicably of the stowaway scene from Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. I don't know why it does. I think because she's just sort of stows away in a random box. Maybe that's why. So let's talk a little bit about where they're going. Now, we've seen this base before. A while back, the X-Men, before their big year-long journey the, to get back from, uh, from Antarctica, got kidnapped and taken to a volcano base because Magneto is a very committed villain, so of course he has a volcano base. And he ends up blowing up that volcano base in order to make his getaway to, I believe, 
asteroid M, does he does he fly off into space after that? Um, he he flies away and he flies off into space a couple times. Once he did it in a circus wagon. Uh, that was actually to get to that base. He took the X Men with him. God, I love Magneto. I just love X Men in general, but yes, especially Magneto. So yeah, they're investigating this old volcano base and seemingly pretty much abandoned. But all of a sudden, Storm starts hearing this creepy, creepy voice, and it is the voice that she recognizes of Garrock, the petrified man. Garrock, the petrified man. I don't think we actually covered this guy before. I think we decided he was too boring to talk about. You know, we talked about him a little, but honestly, there's not a lot to talk about. Did we actually talk about him by name, or did we just say that Zaladane did some stuff and there were some guys? Well, he's one of those guys. Regardless, yeah, he a a cult in the Savage Land, which is the sort of dinosaur prehistoric place in Antarctica, raised him up and empowered him, and the X Men fought him, and he fell to his doom. Uh, Storm tried to save him, but wasn't able to do so. So now he's back, and he's really mad at Storm, a little bit misguidedly, and yet still completely lacked lacks any kind of distinct personality like i actually thought he was a robot for this entire issue because the only thing that actually damages him is kitty phasing through him which to me indicates that he must be electronic but it turns out he's not he's just kind of inconsistent and dull oh dude okay so yes i can sort of agree to a point but you know that i do like a good villain speech so kitty pride runs into him and he introduces himself thusly behold child the ruin of a living god behold garrock i am keeper of this place charged nay condemned by magneto to defend it against all intruders do not resist me child or attempt to escape neither will succeed i offer a quick death like See, i sort of imagined that in a marvin the sad robot voice I like my voice way better, but to be fair, I'm biased. Regardless, the X-Men fight, they all catch up, and we see the first instance... Oh, we can use that the term we came up with, the first phaseball special, where Colossus yes! throws Kitty through him, and uh, he once again falls to his death, and maybe he's gone, but probably not, because it's X-Men. He'll be back to menace them next time they need a one-off villain, probably. I don't know. I don't really care. We'll probably skip that episode, to be fair. But meanwhile, his former master is just fucking nonstop with Lee and Scott in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle. We're going to find out at the end of this issue that he totally knows who they are already, and they're trying really hard to keep their identities hidden, and meanwhile, (laughs) he gives them the best fucking outfits. This is the issue of just amazing outfits. It totally is, yeah. So they're in this sort of Atlantis-like castle in the Bermuda Triangle, and so I guess Magneto figures that they might as well look the part. So uh, he dra- he gives Lee Forrester this outfit. She looks like somebody out of a, a John Carter story. Yeah, she looks like, like a, a, she looks like a gorgeous Frazetta painting. And then Cyclops. Cyclops has a tunic which is largely largely composed of a golden octopus on yeah, his he, chest. He's, he's wearing a scoop neck tunic with half gladiator skirt and what looks like just a big gold octopus glued to the chest. It's an amazing outfit. Words really can't do justice to how spectacularly awful this is. It's it's terrific. And and the great thing is, just like Kitty's wearing her gloriously homemade outfit for this entire arc, Cyclops and Lee are wearing these ridiculous costumes for the entire arc as well. Are there any panels that have all of them in it? uh, I think there may be. That might be too glorious for the internet to support. So anyway. It might blow out your computer's graphics cards just with its sheer spectacular dubious fashion. <laughs> so we just had a giant-sized issue in X-Men 137. We have another giant-sized double-sized issue in X-Men 150. X-Men 150 is one that we've mentioned before because it's the one where Magneto becomes the Magneto we're familiar with, where he gets a distinct personality and where he goes from being an entertaining and bombastic but ultimately fairly one-dimensional villain to the really nuanced, morally gray character that we've all come to know, love, and occasionally ally with. Everyone kind of converges around this island. The uh, Xavier and the X-Men have realized that this is where Scott and Lee are and this is where Magneto is. 
And so they sort of uh, sneak in at the time. Well, they don't just sneak in. They get some help from a very special ally. Let's talk about this special ally. It is Dr. Peter Corbo. Again. We're a little obsessed with this with Peter Corbeau. He's not actually very significant. He's not he even keeps, actually very interesting. He keeps coming back. What he reminds me of is like um in, in a role playing game when the the storyteller has an NPC that they really really like, but uh, the players just just don't care. So the character keeps coming back, and the players every time are just sort of meh. I, I was thinking about this. You know, what does he do when he's not helping the X Men? He's a scientist, and mm-hmm. he's got a ship. He's a ship captain. He's got his ship is what the the Deja Thoris too, because this is just the John Carter arc, and. He's also an adventurer, and so, so I decided um, that you know that maybe when he's not helping the X Men, he's on whatever the Marvel six one six equivalent is of that old like educational series, The Voyage of the Mimi. Holy shit, The Voyage of the Mimi! Yeah, and if 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 you grew up watching this in science class, you now have the theme song stuck in your head. You're welcome. God damn it! I'm gonna be like like saying all my lines. And Magneto has the powers. Okay, we we need to stop that. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. So, the point is, Magneto has a big evil plot because he's Magneto, and that's sort of his job but it's actually not that evil a plot it looks like when at first what he's doing he's he's got some kind of massive machine that'll cause earthquakes and volcanoes and amplify his powers because you know magnetism is is just incredibly incredibly versatile in the marvel universe (laughs) and so he wants he wants all of earth's governments to cede control to him and it turns out as it goes that what he wants to do with this isn't to run the world his only goal is nuclear disarmament which is actually kind of cool. So he doesn't really care about humans, but he does care about mutants, and he figures, well, we're stuck on the same planet, and you guys are being dumbasses and are going to blow up the entire world, and unfortunately, that's where we are too, so we don't want to get blown up, so therefore, I'm going to take away these dangerous toys so you don't mess with us. I want to talk about this a little bit, and I want to talk about Magneto and the transition he undergoes here. His goals are honorable, but he is still very much the villain of this issue in this story, and I think that's one of the strengths of Magneto as he continues on after this. He's a character who is consistently and interestingly gray. When he's a villain, he's almost always, at least from this point on, got at least vaguely sympathetic goals or is coming from a vaguely sympathetic place. And at the same time, when he's a hero, he's still really ethically compromised and he makes some really terrible and really kind of villainous choices. He's never really going to be just a cut and dried good guy or bad guy after this. And I think that's what makes him one of the best characters of the X-Men. Honestly, Magneto is my favorite supervillain of all time. And it's for exactly the reasons that you describe. You can always sympathize with what he's doing. You can always see why he's doing what he's doing, even if you don't agree with it. Yeah, we've talked before about both Magneto and Professor X being studies and doing the wrong things for the right reasons. I think this is really where that starts with Magneto. So anyway, plot. What also starts here with Magneto plot-wise is Magneto's backstory because he, you know, he very early on in this issue after his big demands to the world's governments reveals that um he knows who Cyclops is like right like you said Rachel. Mm-hmm. Um and he and asks, he asks after Jean. Yeah, he's like, "Hey, you know, you're with this woman. I thought you were in love with Jean Grey." And Cyclops says that she died. And we have this we have this great line. Like it actually is is part of this this huge page of dialogue. And Cyclops is surprised that Magneto gives a shit about her being dead. Because all Magneto's ever really done relative to the X-Men is try to kill them a lot repeatedly. Oh, except once when there was some weird creepy non-consensual age play and we're not going to talk about that again. We already did the once. But yeah, so uh, Magneto says she was an honorable foe, Cyclops, as are all the X-Men, worthy of respect. 
I cared for her. I grieve for her. I know something of grief. Search throughout my homeland and you will find none who bear my name. Mine was a large family and it was slaughtered. Without mercy, without remorse. So speak not to me of grief, boy. You do not know the meaning of the word. I like how he goes, he starts at sympathetic and ends, just ends up declamatory. Yeah, and so what we learn on this page is that A, Magneto respects the X-Men, but B, we learn a lot about his history. I mean, he lost a lot of family members in Auschwitz. That specifically comes up in context of a scene where he thinks he's killed Kitty Pride. She's tried to phase through him and he's been doing something that lets him absorb and then redirect Storm's lightning because, again, magnetism is magic. He thinks he's killed her and he realizes that he's killed a mutant kid. Yeah, and he's just, he's just crushed by this. He's like, what what have I become? I mean, I, I think I'm right, but am I willing to take this so far as to just become a monster? And Storm comes in and sees what's happened. And it's not just Magneto that shifts. It's the way the X-Men respond to him. A few issues ago, we saw Storm and Doctor Doom establishing a point of mutual respect. And we really see that happen as well with Storm and Magneto here. And she ultimately decides to let Magneto go. The X-Men don't beat him. And actually, at one point, a little bit earlier, um, she is about to attempt to assassinate him while he sleeps, having, uh, having escaped. Spoiler, that doesn't work either. Her line, he looks so vulnerable and strangely at peace. I have never seen him like this. Why are we enemies? There's much to respect about him, almost to admire. What a shame. What a tragic waste. I don't know. See, I, I got to thinking about this, and Rachel, you and I were talking about this earlier. A lesser writer, I think it would feel like this was just sort of horned in. Like, look, here's this character, and now you should care about him. Now you should be sympathetic. Here are all these reasons. But I really, really buy it. It's a sudden shift for Magneto, but it's believable. What do you think? I think it's totally believable. I think having him off the table for a while has really helped. I think easing back into his reintroduction in this arc makes a pretty big difference. And honestly, I think the Storm and Dr. Doom arc that comes before this helps a lot to lay the foundation for the idea of a noble opponent. Absolutely, because that's definitely um, Doom, and that's Both even, in the narrative and for Storm as a character. That's basically how this story resolves, with Magneto essentially surrendering. But speaking of noble opponents, and somewhat more literally, the next villain we come to is actually another one who's going to end up a member of the X-Men, and who's eventually going to be somewhat redeemed. But not for a while, and that is Emma Frost, the White Queen of the Hellfire Club. We, we last saw Emma Frost in the Hellfire Club portion of the Dark Phoenix saga. She wasn't really very well developed there, we just knew that she, she was, was still awesome. Oh, she was, but she was just sort of this cruel telepath who was willing to do whatever it took to accomplish her goals. And who was powerful enough to go toe-to-toe with the Phoenix Force and survive. Well, the thing is, at the the time, we didn't think she did survive. All of the X-Men thought she had died in that combat. But in fact, she had not. You would think that they would know to just never believe anyone's dead if there's not a body. And really, not even then, because come on, Professor X. (laughs) Exactly. Maybe that's why he fakes his own death all the time. Maybe it's to try to teach them this lesson that they just keep on failing to pick up. Oh, it's like the, and that's why you always leave a note thing from Arrested Development. Yes. And that's why you always check for a corpse and then still don't believe it. (laughs) Exactly. So where this opens, as many X-Men storylines do, with everything in a kind of status quo back at the X-Mansion. Now, Scott at this point is back with the team. He w- he took his leave of absence. That apparently is over. He's back either leading or co-leading. It's kind of ambiguous at this point. The and Lee is gone. Lee is, I guess, in the girlfriend cave playing cards with Amanda Sefton. Now, to be fair, Chris Claremont is usually pretty good about having the supportive cast have lives of their own and be real people. And this is an exception to that. And since it's an exception, I'm willing to forgive that one. As 
you may or may not recall from the lead up to the Dark Phoenix saga, in addition to being the white queen of the Hellfire Club and running around in fancy lingerie mind controlling people, Emma Frost actually runs a boarding school called the Massachusetts Academy. And we didn't really see any of that before. It was just sort of mentioned, but that was one of the sco- one of the two schools that was courting Kitty, knowing that she was a mutant, that and Xavier's own school. And the reason that Kitty ended up at the Xavier school is that Phoenix mind controlled her parents into letting her go there. At this point, maybe the mind controls weren't off. Maybe they've just sort of taken a look at the school where they've actually sent their kid, but they decide that they're going to withdraw her and send her the- to the Massachusetts Academy. And this is played as this terrible decision. But when you actually look at it, I feel like the prides are kind of right here. Right. I mean, Kitty is 13 years old, and the, the, the next youngest student at this school, which has like less than 10 students, is what, 18 or so? I mean, that's kind of weird. There is no normal academic curriculum that we've seen. Like, the only actual teacher alternates between yelling at her and running danger room exercises. Right. I think the one academic exercise we've seen her do at all is learning how to pilot a plane, which, I mean, I guess that's a class, but what about, you know, math or history? (laughs) I really love the idea of the Xavier Academy as the equivalent of weird faith-based homeschooling that just churns out these kids who are completely unprepared to function in college or the real world. They go to college science classes and they're like, I know exactly how magnetism works, you guys. I, I, I'm really good at fighting giant robots, but uh, w- what are you referring to, War of 1812? Uh, was, were Sentinels in that one, too? Maybe he just telepathically educates them. But anyway, Kitty's parents, being very, vaguely responsible parents, decide they're going to pull her out. They're going to send her to the Massachusetts Academy. They're also incidentally getting a divorce. So it's basically she basically gets one long, yeah, fuck you letter, which at 13 is just the end of the world on a bunch of fronts. Yeah, and uh, Storm actually goes to comfort her, and she's... She's basically saying, hey, my whole world is falling apart. My family's splitting up. My surrogate family here, I have to leave. Like, are, are, are you going to stop loving me too, Storm? It's really sad. And Storm and Kitty's relationship is the center of a lot of this. This is one of those interesting friendships and relationships that's super familial. And I mean, the context in which it's used in this story is very, very much surrogate parenthood. I feel like eventually we're going to have to have a longer discussion about these two characters, and this something I actually wonder about this is I feel like these are these are the two characters around whom there's consistently the most queer subtext in X-Men, but it's not really something that often extends into specifically their relationship. Right, exactly. It's gonna be like, you know, Storm and Yukio or Kitty and Ilyana later. Or Kitty on. and every single female character in Excalibur and any other team she's part of for years. Yeah, but this is this is very much like a familial, I should say, mother and daughter kind of relationship, and I think the comic really sells it really effectively. I totally buy it. And Emma Frost certainly knows about it because it's the linchpin of her dastardly plan. Oh, it is so dastardly. So Super dastardly. So Storm takes Kitty to the Massachusetts Academy to kind of get a chance to say goodbye, but that was all part of the plot and what Emma Frost wants to do, and in fact does very quickly while Kitty's settling in, is to switch bodies with Storm. And she does this with something that we later learn is a persona exchange gun. God, Emma Frost has the best evil gadgets where does she get those wonderful toys right she had she, you know, she had this thing that that made mastermind basically telepathic she's got this persona exchange gun one of the things i love about supervillains in the marvel universe is that they're all apparently capable of building these incredibly over-the-top gadgets that do otherwise impossible things even if like science is not their shtick well she's got the hellfire club's resources backing her and these are the guys who effectively hacked into cerebro so i assume that they've got a lot of super science going on they've got whoever changes donald Pier- oil and <laughs> puts him up on the up up on jacks spinning rims anyway um storm is in uh, emma's body emma is in storm's body and kitty doesn't realize that either of these things is the case but 
Speaking of the Hellfire Club, while the various body snatching is happening in Massachusetts, they attack the X Academy with Sentinels because unlike Magneto, who really cares about the preservation of mutants, all the Hellfire Club really cares about is being super powerful and rich. What ends up happening is that the Hellfire Club effectively captures the X-Men in the X-Mansion and they have some of their goons there. They have a few of the the inner circle. Um, We have Shaw, we have Emma, and we have Leland. If we're going to talk about the Hellfire Club, I want to talk about two really specific Hellfire Club characters who are introduced in this arc, who are my two favorite characters in this arc, and those are Harvey and Janet. Harvey and Janet are the real heroes of this issue, nay, this title, nay, this medium. Harvey and Janet are these two random-ass Hellfire Club guards who just keep on showing up in the story, who every time we see them, like, especially in 151, because th- there's a combination of artists on this. I don't remember. It's it's three different people. And this is like the only issue in this era where everyone has really convincing casual body language, because everyone looks like Burn is great, but Burn is iconic and everyone looks like they're posing. Cockrum is great, but again, same deal. This is the issue where people stand the way people stand. And, and we see Harvey and Janet and, you know, we, we really get a sense of their rapport. And they also just randomly have names and they have these really, really mundane names. So, you know, I mean, Harvey and Janet, they it's really just a job to them. You know, Harvey got laid off from the plant a while back and he was looking for all the work he could find. And, you know, Janet's Janet's kids are in college and she's she's she wants to go back into the workforce. Uh, they're, they're friends. You know, they they and their spouses play bridge together every Sunday. And they've gotten really close at work. And I mean, they started to really question and they started thinking about having an affair and there was an almost kiss. But then they realized, no, our families are too important to us. We can just be friends. Men and women are allowed to just be friends. And they're colleagues. Man, I love Harvey and Janet. Harvey and Janet miniseries. Someone write it. Go. Yeah. If you're bored this week, write us some Adventures of Harvey and Janet fan fiction. We're rooting for you, Harvey and Janet. Actually, one thing that is kind of cool on a more serious note is the Hellfire Club goons at this point, they're pretty equal in terms of their male and female composition. And that's kind of cool to see. Um, They're also all really pissed off at Wolverine, which brings us into issue 152 called the Hellfire Gambit, because apparently another hallmark of like the 140s and 150s is that every other issue will include what's going to become the name of one of the X-Men. Rogue Storm, Hellfire Gambit, etc. I assume that wasn't planned. Maybe later on he just got sort of confused and tried to mine other issue titles. <laughs> or they're just good words. So the X-Men are captured and they're confronted by these uh, three other Hellfire goons who are wearing red instead of blue. And we learned that these are actually the ones that Wolverine cut up when he was infiltrating the Hellfire Mansion back in the Dark Phoenix Saga. They're understandably really upset about it. And they're specifically really upset that now they're cyborgs and they they have, they have a very touching conversation with Wolverine where he has a very healthy attitude about transhumanism. It's a good scene. Um, they're actually going to come back. We learned the name of one Forever. of them. Forever. Yeah, we learned the name of one of them, Cole, here. Uh, they're going to be in the Reavers, who are these sort of uh, cyborgs out in the Australian outback led by Pierce, a member of the inner circle of the Who's, Hellfire again, the guy Club. who needs his oil changed periodically. Yeah, so I, I love that these, these random guys that just got stabbed a bunch issues and issues ago, they're going to be there for a long time. Meanwhile, Emma is in Storm's body and she's having some trouble controlling Storm's powers. Storm is in Emma's body having the same problems. In the last issue, she tried to go talk to Kitty. Kitty didn't believe her. She accidentally knocked her out with a psychic bolt, threw her into a car and headed for Westchester. Kitty wakes up in the car with what she assumes is Emma Frost, who's just hit her with a telepathic attack. She decides to not just let Emma die in the flaming car wreck. She rescues her and slowly Emma, which is to say Storm, convinces her of what's really going on. They get back to the Xavier mansion in time to save the day. Storm manages to persona exchange gun herself and Emma back into their proper bodies. And then Storm is again 
furious and there is a great scene where she's actually straight up about to kill Emma and Wolverine talks her down. We've seen Storm lose control before. We saw that in the Doctor Doom arc. But what makes this one significant is that it's a very deliberate and very direct inversion of a scene we've seen repeated throughout Claremont's run so far of Storm talking Wolverine down when he's out of control. Yeah, and so we have some some great dialogue from Wolverine here. Some people are warriors, darling, born to kill. That's me. And some exist to show us there's a better way. That's you. There's so much beauty in you, Roro. It'd be a shame to spoil it for the likes of her. Yeah, I'm not as hot on this speech, but I do really like this scene because I think it again points to something we've we've mentioned before, which is how much we see Wolverine change over the course of his association with the X-Men, specifically, I think, in context of the Dark Phoenix saga, because he's referenced those a couple times. He did when he was when he was talking Snowbird down a while back. And here he's the one who's talking someone out of crossing a moral event horizon is I feel like kind of significant. When he joins the X-Men, he's the I'm not here to make friends guy. Over the course of the last 50, 60 issues, we've seen him gradually really learn to value those friendships and really learn to value the characteristics that he sees as lacking in himself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Storm, I think, embodies a lot of that for him as a character. So this came up this week in a couple conversations on social media, um, actually in context of Wolverine. And I talk a lot of shit about Wolverine because I get really, really frustrated with how utterly hyper oversaturated he is as a character. Like he is so interesting when he's written well and when he's used well in stories and before he's everywhere doing everything, being the coolest no matter what and shoehorned into stuff. Wolverine, written well in a context where he makes sense, is almost universally engaging and interesting. Yeah, at this point in X-Men history, he's one of the focal characters, and it's for a good reason. Like, I don't mind that. I'm not mad at that. Yeah, if, like me, you have grown disenchanted with Wolverine over time, early Chris Claremont, through and past the Dark Phoenix saga, is a great place to go to to remind yourself of why he was cool in the first place and why he was useful as a character. Totally. Well, I think that's all just about all the time we have for today. Let's jump into some questions real quick. Okay, so Jennifer Wolf asks, I've wondered since I was a kid reading X-Men back in the 90s, what was the reason X-Men 137 could be worth $2,500? She's referring to a big note on the cover, you know, this, this issue could someday be worth $2,500. Um, I'm sure it's actually something anticlimactic, but that at the time I thought it meant that they already knew how good it was. Reprints never seem to include the important details. So we looked around and we couldn't figure this out for a long time. We had uh, some some readers uh, put their theories on our blog. Yeah, someone mentioned a sweepstakes and it turns out it's actually something different. And shout out and many, many thanks to Carl Horn who actually dug up a copy of the issue for us. And yeah, so I looked through it and it was a uh, it was a contest, not a sweepstakes. And it was actually three contests um, based on the age of the people who were entering. So uh, you, had, you had to answer a question. If you were under 10, and I think the age groups they have here sort of imply who they thought was reading X-Men at the time. If you were under 10, the question was who your favorite Marvel superhero was and why. If you were 11 to 14, it's who was your least favorite Marvel character and what could Marvel do to improve them. And if you were over 15, uh, which is, you know, the rest of of everyone, uh, the question was how should the Marvel Universe change to face the challenges of the 80s? Um, so you were supposed to send in your answer, and they would uh, they would give you a prize if you won. Um, it said entries will be judged according to originality, aptness of thought, sincerity, and neatness. So what this basically is is Marvel crowdsourcing their editorial direction. Uh, kind of, yeah. To a bunch of children. 
I, I know. I love that. This so, explains the 90s so much. <laughs> um, so we're, we'll, go ahead, doing it. we'll go ahead and um, I, I took some pictures with my smartphone. I didn't want to mess up the issue by scanning it. We'll see if we can get those on the blog. Yeah, it's it's a cool it's it's a cool contest, and they're actually great questions. Um, good jumping off points to think about stuff. Yeah. Uh, so second question. This is from Doug Thompson. Didn't Lee Forrester hook up with Magneto at some point on his Bermuda Triangle Island base? I think it was her, and I remember finding it an odd pairing. Of course, now that I've read through Inferno and the Dear God My Eyes Havoc Metal and Prior stuff, it doesn't seem strange at all. Oh my God, I know, right? Can it, we're we're holding off talking about Madeline Pryor for as long as we can, but oh wow, yeah. Okay, so you may remember that last episode I mentioned that Lee Forrester will never again be written all that well, which is a goddamn shame. Um, she goes through a long series of cameo appearances as people's girlfriends or brief flames or hookups. Um, at one point, she's going to rescue Magneto from a shark attack. Um, I think it's in, in 188. They hook up really briefly and then drift apart almost immediately. She's into Cable for a while until she learns that he's Cyclops' kid, which is, <laughs> yeah, there are, there are levels of like weird and lines you don't cross, and that's definitely one of them. Um, there's a bunch of other stuff, and it's depressing and sad, and I wish that someone had actually written a goodly Forrester story after this arc because she's great and she really doesn't deserve to be the serial girlfriend of second string marvel characters maybe she can be the total badass that's in the harvey and janet miniseries that someone's going to write i'm good with that harvey janet and lee forrester save the marvel universe perfect or burn it down so that's all the time we have for today rachel want to take us out all right rachel and miles explain the x-men is recorded in portland oregon and produced by bobby roberts who's also the co-host of the awesome welcome to that whole thing which you can check out at welcome to that whole thing.com Check out our website at rachelandmiles.com. We have a visual companion post for every episode we do. There's fan art and all sorts of other nonsense. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher. And as of the end of July, Comics Alliance. If you're enjoying the show, please take a minute to check out our Patreon. You can find a link from rachelandmiles.com and to rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. So next week is San Diego Comic-Con. Unfortunately, there's no X-Men programming at San Diego this year. Fortunately, we'll be right here in the studio, filling that gap with a comprehensive look at the current state of the X-Universe. So if you've been wondering what's up in the current X-Men, books and where to dive in this one's for you it'll be like an extra bonus panel you can listen to while standing in line for whatever's going on sunday see you on the other side (laughs) 